0: Luke chapter 2, and we'll commence our reading there, uh, verse 21. When eight days were accomplished for the circumcising of the child, his name was called Jesus, which was so named of the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the days of her purification, according to the law of Moses, were accomplished, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male that openeth the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to that which is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And the same man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Ghost was upon him. And it was revealed unto him by the Holy Ghost that he should not see death before he had seen the Lord Christ. And he came by the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him after the custom of the law, then took he him up in his arms and blessed God. And said, Lord, now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace according to thy word. For mine eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared before the face of all people, a light to lighten the Gentiles, and the glory of thy people Israel. Thus thus far the reading of God's word this morning. May he bless it to us. We continue in our Harmony of the Gospels. And you remember that our aim here, in every case, is to show that though we have four individual Gospel writers, each writer presents to us infallibly, without error, a portrait of the selfsame Christ. And this morning as we come to Luke's Gospel, it's, I think, fitting for us to remind ourselves of that fact. The Gospel writers very clearly set before us a person, a living and a personal Christ. I insist on this often and I know that I do but but beloved we've missed the point of the gospels if we fail here. This is a Christ, not merely a system of doctrine. This is a Christ, the gospel writers remind us who is not some kind of ethic or, or moralistic system. This is a living and a personal Christ. This is the Christ whom we encounter in our text this morning. And as the Gospel writer presents this Christ to us, he's very careful to present to us also those who are around him. We're given significant detail about those, as we saw in the first and second chapters now, who had come into contact with this Christ. And as we saw last Thursday morning, one such individual, of course, was Simeon. You remember that the Gospel writer emphasizes certain parts of Simeon's being. Certainly, his character is highlighted by the Gospel writer. And the significance of that, of course, is that this man stands like a flickering flame in the midst of a very, very dark day. He is a strange man, a rare man, a man who fears God and seeks to be a faithful testimony bearer in a generation of vipers. That's Simeon. But more than that, we're not just told something about his character, we're also told about his employment, what he's really aiming at. He is waiting for the consolation of his seraph. The Gospel writer will not allow us to move any further without telling us very pointedly, this is a man who waited upon God. And waited upon God for the promised consolation of the church. Now as we come to our text this morning, verses 26 to 28, we're given even more detail about the man. And particularly we're given more information about what he does. As he comes into contact with this incarnate Christ... What exactly befalls him. In verse 26, we have again the promise that was given. He was a man who would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And as we said last Word's Day, the, the sentence of that text is Simeon was promised that he would encounter Christ before he ever encountered death. In other words, he would see Christ ever before he saw the grave. And the point, of course, is that that promise is fulfilled in our text this morning. Simeon indeed does encounter this living, this person of Christ in our text. But then as you look at verses 27 and following, you'll find that the fulfillment of that promise has several details surrounding it. First of all, the fulfillment comes as Simeon, we're told in verse 27, came by the Spirit into the temple. This is how fulfillment would come about the Spirit of God would immediately work in Simeon to bring him into the temple. In other words, it would not be left to secondary causes. God would immediately bring this one who waited for Israel's consolation into the temple. If you will, a kind of emphasis on the fact that the promise would certainly be fulfilled. But if you look at this text, you'll notice that Simeon comes into the temple... Before you have the sacrifices. That we mentioned even in the verses before. Simeon is led by the spirit of God. To come as it were. To greet Mary and Joseph and Christ. Before the law is fulfilled. With regard to purification. Now what's striking about that. And we'll certainly consider that. In a few moments time. Simeon becomes the only one. To greet them. At this moment. Anna will come later. But you'll notice that none of the house of Levi, who had already heard through Zacharias that Messiah was coming, none would be there. It would only be this man, presumably a quite elderly man, who would stand there and notify the temple that the one who was truly Emmanuel, had come only he only Simeon would have that privilege but then as we come to the 28th verse not only do you have an express fulfillment of his promise but note friend how the text brings the fulfillment to us Simeon takes hold of God incarnate holds him in his arms and blesses God he blesses God in the strain with the themes that you have in the verses that follow. Uh, verses 29 to 32. Simeon extols God as he holds the incarnate Son of God in his hands. He extols God because he sees the one who is Israel's consolation. Now, that's our text. But if you hold all of these things together... And you'll notice that this text and all of its details really function in two different ways. First of all, of course, the Gospel writer is very keen to show us that, that here the Spirit of God, God himself would testify to Christ's identity. In other words, when Christ comes into the temple, there would be one led by the Spirit of God, possessed of a spirit of prophecy, to proclaim, this is the one. This is the one who would be Israel's consolation. This is Emmanuel. Certainly this text holds out that simple truth. God would from on high give testimony to his son. But there's also another aspect in the text that we can't miss either. All of those details that were given to us about Simeon. All of his uniquenesses. All of his rare qualities. All of those things also Come to bear in this moment. What I mean by that is just. Here you have a man. A rare man. And a man who is a member. Of a small believing remnant. You have his experience. Given to us in significant detail. Here you have a man who waited. For Israel's consolation. When so few were. And Luke is very careful. Not just to tell us. What Simeon says. But also to give us a picture of the experience of such a one. To elaborate not just what he says of Christ. But what befalls himself. And that holds up two things to us about Simeon. First of all you find here a man who was waiting. He was waiting and he was promised that he would see. You see so many friend in the gospels saw Christ. Who were not initially given that promise. So many beheld Christ without being told that they would do so. Just think of the disciples. Think of the multitudes. But no, Simeon was first given a promise that he would see Christ. And then, of course, that promise is fulfilled. Why? Well, friend, as you look through this text, and certainly we'll see this in just a moment's time. Simeon was given a promise as he waited on the Lord. He was a man who would, in other words, be sustained with the assurance that the Lord God would be gracious even to him. But secondly, you see here Simeon's joy. It's not merely, friend, that Simeon is the one who holds Christ. How many came in close proximity to Christ? How many, of course, saw this Christ, approached him in the most intimate ways, and never blessed God as Simeon does? The Gospel writer here explains that the man before us is a man who rejoices. But he rejoices not merely because he holds the incarnate Christ. As verse 32 shows, verse 30 shows us, he rejoices because his faith is lodged in this Christ, who is salvation. Again, verse 30 is very clear. Mine eyes, says Simeon, have seen thy salvation. Simeon's joy is one of faith. Now, as we look at this and as we seek to apply it to ourselves, I'd only highlight for you at this stage how much detail has been given to us. Simeon's experience, his character, his desires, the promise, its fulfillment, and now his response are given to us. And you realize, beloved, as you look at the Gospel account, we would lose nothing as far as the timeline was concerned if those details were left. To the wayside. We would still of course have in our timeline, in the history, Christ coming into his temple and ritually the sacrifices, the ritual purifications all performed. But the gospel writer is very clear. It is necessary for the people of God to see this man. All of his experiences, all of his responses in relation to Christ. Christ. You see, friend, what you have here is something that really runs right through Luke's gospel, isn't it? We've said from the very first chapter that Luke is very careful as the inspired historian, not merely to show us how Christ is revealed, but how men and women respond to that revelation. We saw that with Zacharias and Elizabeth. We saw that with Mary and we saw that with the shepherds. The Gospel writer lingers, as it were, with these ones to show us how they respond to the Christ who stands before them. And of course, in those cases, you have positive and you have negative examples. You have those who doubt and those who believe. And those who believe, we find in every case, are those who rejoice, as Simeon does in our text. As we apply this, friend, what you have here is an example An example given to us in great detail about the experience of one who is endowed with faith in Christ. And so in Simeon's example we see this, and this is our theme for this morning. That God sustains his own with promises and faith's enjoyment of Christ. God sustains his own with promises and faith's enjoyment of Christ. And I want us to see that first of all with regard to the provision that Simeon has given prior to this moment. You'll notice here in verse 26, it was revealed unto him by the Holy Ghost that he would first encounter Christ before he encountered death. Now friend, this is of course a certain, this is a divine promise that Simeon was given. And it was given to him as he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. The sense in the text is that Simeon was always a waiting man. Simeon was a man who was always looking intently to the church's consolation. To the one who is the branch. To the one who is the church's spring and revival. And while he waits, the promise comes. He will indeed see this Christ. And this is unique, beloved. I want you to notice no one in the scriptures was given this promise as Simeon was. What I mean by that is you think of David... You think of a man who so earnestly longed to see his house established. We'll see that in just a moment's time. And yet this was a promise that he would not be given. Or take Solomon. Solomon will cry as he does in Proverbs 30. What is his name if thou canst tell? Take Isaiah. A man who saw so much prophetically of Jesus Christ. He was asking only the question, who shall declare his generation?" These ones were not given the promise that Simeon was. He stands unique in redemptive history in that regard. But friend, if you look at this text, there is something about Simeon that is not unique. You'll find here that this is a man who was a believing man, a man who is a remnant, who belonged to the remnant rather, a man who lived in declining age. And the Lord gave him promises, notwithstanding all those difficulties. You see, friend, in that way, Simeon is not unique at all. What you find here, friend, as we apply it to ourselves, that the Lord does indeed supply promises for his people's present health. And I want you to notice the principle. As we look at this theme, our theme is really to ask the question, why is Simeon even given the promise? Certainly, Simeon could have encountered Christ as many did without the promise. And certainly Simeon himself could have pronounced what he did under inspiration of God's Spirit without the foregoing promise. So why was Simeon given the promise when so many others weren't? Why was he given the promise that he would indeed see Christ when so many others never enjoyed such a thing? Well, friend, to answer that question, it does bring us to that theme that the Lord indeed supplies promises for his people's help. And there's a principle behind this that you and I know well. Why is it that God supplies these things for his own? Well, take Hebrews Hebrews 6. The writer tells us very pointedly, God, willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath. And here's the reason why. So that we may have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope that is set before us. Why is it, says the writer of the Hebrews, that God has given these solemn promises to Abraham and really to all of those who have Abraham's faith? A strong consolation is derived therefrom. That's what the writer says. And so when we look to the promises of God, we assume immediately that, that of course, these things are given so that the people of God will be sustained by them. Their comfort kept up, as it were. These things are supports to God's people, especially to people who, like in Simeon's day, saw only declension. Saw only, time and time again, tokens of God's displeasure. Promises are lodged for God's people in the Word of God, so that, says the writer, they may have a strong consolation. Promises solemnly made in God's name. These things for the people of God's comfort. Now, friend, I would say that to you is perhaps the most straightforward way of thinking about the promises. Why are they given for God's people and their comfort? But what's striking as you look throughout throughout the scriptures, when we find reasons why the promises of God are given, preeminently the reasons why are not for their consolation only. That's certainly a reason, but not a primary, not a prevailing reason. I'll just read you a few texts. Take what you have from 2 Corinthians 7. The, the apostle writes, Having these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and the spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Do you, you see the apostle's argument? Why do you have these promises, Corinthians? Why do you have these promises, Christian? Here's the argument. Let us, so that we may cleanse ourselves. So that we may be a people who are removing from ourselves all filthiness of the flesh and spirit and perfecting holiness in the fear of God. I think, friend, that's perhaps one of the ways that we've forgotten the promises are to be applied. The apostle says very pointedly, You have these promises and here's why. They are to instigate holiness. They are to drive you to sanctification. I'll read to you another text. Hebrews 10. Let us hold fast to the profession of the faith without wavering. Why? For he is faithful that promised. Note the apostles' argument again. The exhortation is, let us hold fast. Why? Because he says here, he is faithful that promised. The promise becomes, as it were, the catalyst for, For the people of God and their sanctification. I'll just give you another one. Take 1 Timothy 4. Bodily exercise profiteth little, but godliness is profitable unto all things, having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. And the Apostle's exhortation manifestly there is this. These promises should incite you to greater holiness. Holiness. The promises, note this, are really given to God's people, says the Apostle, over and over again, that they would be steadfast. That they would be driven to obedience. Driven to greater purity. And you may ask me at this stage, well, I don't quite see the relationship. How are these things given that the people of God might be steadfast? Well, there are a number of answers we can give to that, but allow me just give you two. Take first of all what the apostle says in the verse of the text I've just read before. The exhortation is: they are to hold fast the profession of their faith without wavering. Why? Because he is faithful who has promised. In other words, the apostle comes to the church there and he says very simply: you are insured victory if you are looking to the Lord Jesus Christ. Your profession is genuinely sure. And so the people of God should derive encouragement for that. As they seek to be faithful, they have, of course, that strong consolation that all of those who look to Christ by faith will indeed be presented a chaste virgin. Will indeed find by experience that the Spirit of God works mightily, putting sin to death and causing them to live into righteousness. It's a strong consolation. There's another reason, and perhaps this is the most basic Friend, think just for a moment of the promises that are given to God's people. If they are sure, if they are certain, what do the people of God possess? What do they possess, just for a moment, for this present life? Do they not have firm confidence that their communion with God is established? Communion with a triune God secured? Don't they have, even for this life, the promise that God will perfect all things for their real good? That every providence that they encounter will indeed work for their own everlasting benefit. That's a promise that's given to them for this life. And then think about the life to come. Are they not promised every good thing in the life hereafter? To peer, as Job says, upon their Redeemer... With their own eyes. Friend if such promises are certain. Yea and Amen in the words of the Apostle. Then certainly shouldn't such people who have been given such gifts live as slaves. To the one who has given them. Beloved as you think of what the promises hold out to us. Should not our debt of gratitude be palpably felt by us? Should we not see in every promise how beholden we are to free grace? And how fitting it is that we live as slaves to Jesus Christ? These things should drive us to steadfastness. I submit to you, friend, this morning that as we look at this text, we should remember that the promises of God are given to God's people as of old so in the new for these same reasons of course for the comfort of God's people but as it was in Simeon's case in a day of declension these things urge the steadfastness of God's people and so Simeon is promised he's given provision for his present home and let me give you here just an, an example as we leave this point take David As David comes to the end of his life, he writes this. He says, although my house be not so with God, yet hath he made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and sure. For this is all my salvation and all my desire, although he make it not to grow. You, You see what David's saying there. He's looking at his house and he's looking at the desolation that he sees before him. It was a house in many ways that had already felt the sword that was promised by Nathan the prophet. It was a house that certainly did not seem glorious as David inclined toward the grave. And this is is the king's assessment. He says, although my house be not so with God. Although my house is not what I wanted it to be. Although it doesn't appear to be anything desirable. What does the king do? He says, yet he hath made with me an everlasting covenant. Ordered in all things and sure. For this. Is all my salvation. Although everything seems to be in decline. Although temporally speaking. I have little ground. To find comfort. I have this promise. This everlasting covenant. That is secured to me. This is all my desire. Even even if everything around me seems to mitigate against my consolation. Owen commenting on this text tells us this. What you have in this moment is that the believer under present distresses and the saddest prospect of future troubles, it is their duty and wisdom and and privilege to betake themselves for relief and support under the covenant. You see, friend, that's precisely how the promises are to be used. And I would submit to you that this is really the principal promise that Simeon has in view. Not just that he in his own life and for a moment would see Christ. But this everlasting covenant was secure to him. My friend, as we think of this, you understand that we can look at an unbelieving view of providence providence and a believing view of these promises as two people, promising two very different things. The unbelieving view of providence tells us that these things will always be in decline. Tells us that there's no way conceivable that God will fulfill all the great things that he's promised to his own. That's the promise that's held out by an unbelieving view of the world around us. My friend, how often do we take the word of that promiser, so to speak, over the one who promises us that notwithstanding every difficulty, and even in the bleakest, darkest moment, our God, his word is sure. Simeon chose to believe the latter. He improved the providence, he improved those promises to that very particular end. And what was the token of this? What was the token that he actually believed the promise that was given to him? Well, friend, it was just this, wasn't it? That he remained faithful. He actually did use these promises and remained steadfast. As the apostles time and again urge us so to use the promises. Simeon was devout. He was a just man. And that was the token that he was indeed looking to the promises. By faith. Secondly we find here the privilege. that Simeon encounters. And that takes us to the 28th verse. We're told here that Simeon. Took Christ up in his arms. I want you to notice. it's a striking thing when you look at it. It's promised to Simeon. That he will see Christ. But oh does he not do so much more here. He takes Christ. Into his very arms draws him as it were into his very bosom. Uh, just for a moment, contemplate how staggering this moment really is. And Isaiah 6, John tells us in John 12, that the one whom Isaiah beheld, the one whom the angels unfallen as they were could not look upon was Jesus Christ. They couldn't even peer upon this Son of God. Or take, Simply what Job tells us. That before God, the Son, the heavens are not clean in His sight. Or, or take Uzzah. Dying simply because he touched the Ark of the Covenant. And then compare all of those themes, friend, with this moment here. Uzzah died for touching the type. The shadow. While Simeon draws to his very breast the substance. Everything those types pointed toward. Friend, this moment should fill us with wonder, shouldn't it? Should lead us to stagger as we even think about the implications. But I want you to notice something, friend. As you look at this text, as wonderful as that moment is to us. What is striking is as you look in the verses to come. You find a man who had already taken hold of Christ. Already drew him to himself intimately. By faith. Long before Simeon holds Christ in his arms. He holds him by the arms of faith. And it's this. Dear friend. That really is the ground and the root of Simeon's joy. I mean just think how many touched. Christ, even kissed Christ, but did not have the enjoyment here that we see in Simeon. What was the root of that? It was his faith that this was indeed Israel's consolation, that this was indeed salvation sent from on high. And below what you see here is Simeon was enjoying Christ, not merely in his arms, but he really enjoyed Christ as Christ was presented to him in the word, and as faith laid hold of him. And this shows us, as an example for ourselves, that the Lord causes his own to enjoy Christ by faith. As Simeon still stands for us an example as a believing remnant, here we're reminded that the Lord does indeed cause his people to rejoice in Christ by faith. I'll just indicate, friend, what that means from a text that I often, so very often quote to you. It's that from 1 Peter 1. The apostle writes, "...whom having not seen, ye loved, and whom though ye ye now not see him, yet believing, ye rejoice with joy, unspeakable, and full of glory." Note what the apostle writes there. Pointedly, these ones who did not take Christ in their arms, as Simeon does. These ones who did not walk with the Lord for those three years, as the apostles did. Yet nevertheless, Peter says they enjoyed by faith this Christ to such an extent as the apostle writes that their love was full of rejoicing and full of glory. My dear friend, that's the very self-same thing that faith holds forth to every believer in every age. They may enjoy Christ even now and enjoy Christ for the very self-same reason Simeon enjoyed him. Beloved, what you see here, and we can't miss this, is as I begin, the Gospel writers are so clear. This is a personal Christ. Simeon loves a personal Christ. The ones whom Peter writes of, they love a personal Christ. And oh, how intimately do the apostles describe that love. How close is that embrace for these believers. Let me just read to you. I read this at Paul's ordination on Friday. First John 1 gives us a very very clear picture of how intimate this love is to be. The Apostle writes, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled the word of life. All of those things the Apostles say they experienced. And you understand that, don't you? The, The Apostle that is writing here laid upon Jesus' breast the night he was betrayed. I mean, quite frankly, friend, how more intimate could he be? How, how, how closer could he be to this Christ? What's the entailment? Verse 3 of 1 John 1. That which we have seen and heard, declare we unto you that ye may also have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Oh, my dear friend, Simeon enjoyed Christ intimately and personally. Not because he laid hands on the infant Christ, but because by faith he already had fellowship with him. Friend, we are a people who think so lightly about communion with the Lord. We set limits on our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ that the scriptures do not. And all I need to remind you is that our forebears walked very, very closely with the Lord. They were a people who knew Christ. Not about him only. They knew him. They took him up in their arms. Just as Simeon does here. Even though it was not at the bottom. You see, friend, this sight of Christ that Simeon had, yes, of course, it belonged to that part of redemptive history that would never be repeated. But you and I, and really every saint, either in the Old or in the New Covenant, could see Christ in the same way that really led Simeon to rejoice. Your father Abraham, says Christ, rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. No, Abraham did not see the incarnate Christ. But here Christ says very pointedly, he saw Christ nonetheless. There's no reason then to envy Simeon. But there is every reason for you and I to plead that we would know Christ and rejoice in Christ as Simeon does. Because, my dear friend, if you're looking to Christ by faith, the very self-same instrument that Simeon had that brought him to the Lord. Is what you possess. And that question is. Do we have that ambition. To hold Christ so close. Do we have that ambition. To know Christ. So intimately. What we do today. Often will tell us. How we should answer the question. Friend. Where where will we be. Today in our thinking. In our hearts. Will we be seeking him. To know him more deeply. Or will we allow ourselves to drift. Into the things of the world. Love, well, be careful. What's held out to you even this morning. Is a very intimate knowledge with Christ. Don't spurn it. Don't spurn it. The thirdly and finally as we close. What we find here is again. Simeon stands for us an example. Of how one ought to respond. Note, friend, note what marks this man who holds Christ by faith in his arms. He blesses God. He blesses God. This teaches us, of course, that the promises and faith's enjoyment of Christ actually lead to worship. I'll say this to you only from 1 Corinthians 1. Note the Apostle's logic. He says here, of Him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God has made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, and why? That according as it is written, He that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. You see, friend, if you actually have Christ in all the ways the apostles described, if you hold Him so closely and so intimately, as we've just been discussing, what is the real entailment? What is the real mark? You're one Friend who blesses God. You see, friend, our desire for God's worship corresponds intimately and inextricably with our experience of Christ. The text holds that out very clearly in this simple example. The man who really, the woman who really holds Christ intimately by faith will find the worship of God something that they crave. That they count more than more precious even than their lives. My friend, this is Simeon, and this stands for us an example. Provisions have been made for him to sustain him, to keep him steadfast in a declining age, and that, of course, is the promise—promises that should incite him to holiness. He's been given those privileges, privileges of a present enjoyment of Christ. He can rejoice in a Christ who is really his, and his by faith. And we see here that the response to all of this are his praises. He who knows Christ so well, he who really holds to the promises as he ought, will be a man who blesses God. Now as we close with application, friend, allow me just to set before you a very basic thought. As you read the verses before that describe for us Simeon's character. As you hold those in light of the generation in which Simeon lived. You see a man who is faithful in the face of great difficulty. And then friend I want you to notice in our text how the Lord responds. Not just a sight of Christ. Not just a glimpse of the incarnate God. The Lord allows him an intimate acquaintance with the Lord. The Lord causes him to be blessed, perhaps in ways we couldn't even imagine. That he himself couldn't imagine. What does that teach us? Well friend, to put it in the old way, Christ will be a debtor to none. I say unto you, there is no man here that hath left house, or brethren, or sisters, or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or lands for my sake in the Gospels. But he shall receive an hundredfold now, in this time, houses, and brethren, and sisters, and mothers, and children, and lands, with persecutions. And in the world to come, eternal life. You see what Christ says there. There will be none who are steadfast for me. There will be none in this remnant who suffer for my sake. Who will not receive an hundredfold now. In this time and in the time to come. You see my dear friend. The world will tell you that to be a believing remnant. Is to be out of step. To be isolated. And ultimately to be impoverished. But even in Simeon's example here. You see how God is gracious. To such. Who are faithful. To. Testimony bearers. They get the hundredfold. And that hundredfold is Christ himself. Christ will be a debtor to none. He will reward more. Give back more. Than whatever was taken. As they sought to be faithful. And so beloved make this your great ambition. As it were to get an armful. Of Christ. By faith. Nothing that you may be asked. To give for his cause nothing nothing is so great as holding him himself. Simeon certainly would attest to this. Bless is God for its truth, and may we be a people who by experience can do the same. Amen.